Hello, listeners. This is Dan. Before we start the show, I need to let you know about a few events coming up. On Thursday, March 28th, 2019, the Project Fibonacci Foundation is holding the first annual Women in STEAM Congress, part of the Project Fibonacci Livestream Series, in cooperation with Utica College and Women Ties. This is a professional development and networking event for high school and college-aged women, featuring a Women in Entrepreneurship panel, moderated by WKTV News Channel 2's Jill Reel. Seating is limited, so reserve your spot by going to projectfibonacci.org or getting your tickets on Eventbrite. On May 9th, the Lifestream Professional Development event Discovery Learning in the Future is for STEM educators, school counselors, proponents of STEM with the arts, or STEAM, industry professionals, and community leaders. Educators can earn professional development credits for attending through their affiliated BOCES. And we're accepting nominations for the 4th Annual Project Fibonacci STEAM Leadership Conference, which is July 28th through August 3rd. Students entering 10th grade through junior year of college will take part in hands-on, immersive, team-based, and project-based learning. And this year, the project is to design a Mars colony. You can get information for all of these events and more at projectfibonacci.org. I think there's more stories out there than we know that, that are, are like that. Welcome to Steamcast, where STEM and the arts collide. I'm your host, Dan Kostelik, and together we're going to have conversations with the brightest lights and rising stars in the fields of science, technology, engineering, the arts, and math, exploring the world that we live in, the science that makes it all possible, and the art that makes it interesting. This is episode 10, and we're continuing our Women's History Month series with a conversation with Elaine Varga, the Dean of Diversity and Inclusion at Utica College. We talk about exactly what that means. Spoiler alert, it means different things for different people. How to be an ally and celebrating women such as Hedy Lamar, who've made great contributions to both the sciences and the humanities. Can you tell me what being the Dean of Diversity Inclusion actually means? I think it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. What's it mean to you? Um, so for, for me being here um, at Utica College at this day and time and, and, and particular space. It really means paying attention to all the ways in which who we are and the experiences we have had shaped our world, what that means for us in terms of how we see the kind of things that are happening in our world, the way we interact with each other, the way we understand and learn, um, the kind of things that we need to learn about, because my assumption is that there are things that we all are all going to need to learn about and that they may all be different based on what our life experiences are and the kinds of exposure that we've had and access that we've had. And so being the Dean for Diversity and Inclusion means um, really paying attention to those in lots of different ways and doing things that really help create access, equity, and inclusion, particularly at Utica College, certainly for our students, but we need to include our faculty and staff and the rest of our community in that because we are, if we are an educational community, we all need to have a piece of that. And we help shape what the environment is like for all of us who live, learn, and work here. So that means on a day-to-day -day basis, I could be working on a strategic plan or setting up some intergroup dialogue workshops or bringing, having somebody come in um, and setting up a program to take a look at some of the leftover work that we have to do since Martin Luther King um, and the Civil Rights Movement. That might mean working with our LGBTQAI um, students on um, a variety of different kinds of things that they need to have happen on sitting on committees. So there's a variety of different kinds of things that that means. And so my days are very rarely the same. Oh, <laughs> all right. So would it be safe to say that your role as the Dean of Diversity and Inclusion mm -hmm. 
is to just help create and then ensure that UC remains an inclusive place. Uh, to sum it up, I think that's, that's fair. I would add to that 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 means working with other people here to make sure that we're all doing that. Yes. Because we all have a piece of this community and we all have a responsibility to each other and ourselves to be a part of that. And that that is both individual and institutional. Um, because we sometimes forget about one of those pieces, either the, institu either the institutional systemic piece that we need to be paying attention to in terms of our policies, our procedures, our curriculum, those kinds of pieces that make a difference, and our own individual educational opportunities as well as, as interactions in the way we treat and talk with each other. So speaking of educational opportunities, yeah. how did you get here to this spot? How did you get to this point in your career? Without sounding too flippant, um, a little bit by accident. Um, no, sound as flippant as you it's, want. It's, <laughs> <laughs> I just came back from a, a conference of diversity officers in higher education, and one of the, the affiliation tables that I sat at um, were for, for folks who took non-traditional routes to become diversity officers in higher education, and it was probably one of the largest tables that were there in the room. I think very few folks, um, at least of my generation, um, and perhaps a generation after me, went to college to be diversity officers. Um, or to um, work in diversity and inclusion um, in higher education. I'm not sure it was a field in the way that it is now, um, in the way that it's developing at least, in terms of multicultural affairs, um, diversity and inclusion, and there's a variety of ways in which that's, that's now framed. That does not mean that that work hadn't been happening before this, this became an official job title that was, that was being widely recognized. Sure. So I got here by doing, my background is in counseling. So I was a counselor. That seems logical. Advisor. Yeah, for 20 years. And so I was doing work with a range of, of, of students and interacting with um, faculty and staff. I felt like I needed to be out in the world and connecting with people from a variety of different um, life circumstances and backgrounds and all the ways in which we think of our identities is different. But that also meant um, that for me, I was doing workshops, I was doing trainings, I was engaged with people in a whole variety of different kinds of ways. And so from there, I then moved through and into the Associate Dean of Students when that position became vacant, um, worked with folks in conduct, moved into and worked with folks in student activities. So that broadened my perspective yet again, moved into the Dean of Students position where I was working in student affairs and the variety of different departments that are included in student affairs. And so when you're working as the advisor for the Women's Resource Center and working with residence life and working with student activities, and you want to be responsive to a campus that's as diverse as ours is in a variety of ways and be able to move us forward so that we are actively engaging in the ways that we want to with each other. Diversity work becomes part of that. And then as, as the college developed, we um, saw that we needed to have somebody who, whose primary purpose was to serve as point person for those initiatives, because it's work. And while it can be really engaging, celebratory, wonderful, positive work. It also sometimes is difficult. Somebody needs to pay attention. Somebody needs to be working on some of the kinds of things that sometimes result in conflict around all the ways that we're different in the world. And somebody needs to, we were deciding that somebody needed to help move those initiatives forward. And so we created a um, Dean for Diversity and Student Development in Student Affairs. I was still doing a lot of the other um, kind of supervisory work and other kinds of things that I was doing at that point. And then two years ago, created Dean for Diversity and Inclusion and moved that into academic affairs. So this is a new position then? It's a new position in the last two years, yep. And how would you say that's going? You'd have to ask folks here in terms of how <laughs> they feel um, about that. Um, my hope is that they say that it's going well. I think 
that we have an extraordinary group of faculty and staff who are both new to UC, but also who have been here for a while and so have had things kind of permeate through and are looking for opportunities to create new courses, to be able to create opportunities to engage with the kind of things that are happening in the world, to learn more about each other and about our students who are coming in. We have a remarkably diverse campus in terms of students, and we have students who are saying we are looking for a need and want for these kinds of things to happen, for these conversations to occur. We're looking for training, we're looking to facilitate, we're looking to be leaders in those ways. And um, we recognize that the world we're in is increasingly a global society and we need to pay attention to not only who we are but who else is around us in the communities that we're in. So with that, I'm hoping that creating this position, having somebody do some of the kinds of things that pays attention to some of those efforts, I mean, who is working with the incredible group of people that we have here to make that happen, feels like a good step to take to be able to, to help create that inclusive um, community that we've talked about and one that's equitable and accessible to the folks who are here. That is as phenomenal an answer as I can think of. Oh, holy cow. <laughs> so you mentioned the Women's Resource Center. Yes. What does the Women's Resource Center do? Well, at this point, we do primarily educational programming because one would think that the Women's Resource Center would, or one could think that the Women's Resource Center would primarily provide programming and focus on what would be considered women's issues. Sure. That's fair because in creating the Women's Resource Center, we wanted to put women at the center and certainly systems of gender. We expanded into that in terms of how systems of gender affect our experience, um, our lived experience, and the kinds of things that happen for us in the world and about how that affects how we see ourselves and each other. However, what we've expanded to, we're over 20 years old at this point um, in terms of Women's Resource Center, um, and what we've expanded in, into are issues of racial and social justice, about thinking about how gender more broadly affects men and women and now thinking about issues of gender identity and those who identify as gender fluid and about what does that mean as, as we think about the assumptions that we make about each other and the way that we live our experience in the world. So we deal with a wide variety of, of things. So for example, we have somebody right now who's working in the center who is uh, spearheading an initiative to work on, on Earth Day, on an Earth Day program. And for us, there are gendered pieces of what it means to be a sustainable environment and about the impact that that has on women and how that some of their experiences are gendered, both women, men, and for children, in terms of a sustainable earth, kinds of efforts that we need to make to pay attention to those and what, and what that impact is. And we do some of what might be considered traditionally women's issues like sexual assault and domestic violence and women's history and a variety of, of kind of issues around women's health. But we need to think about that more broadly because if those issues are only about women, then that's, that really isn't encompassing who we are as members of the community and the people that we are in community with. And so um, sexual and domestic violence are not just women's issues, they're community issues of which um, men have a, a piece of. And that's not saying that, that I say that because or in any way I'm assuming that the men who are in our lives are going to be those who are participating in sexual assault or domestic violence, but because we are families, we are communities, we are brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and all the other kind of ways that we are with each other, it's all of our concern and it yes. plays out differently based on gender. But we need to be thinking about those things as opposed to seeing it as a women's issue or thinking about potentially how issues that are, we might typically think of a gendered might affect the, the um, families in different kinds of ways as we think about childcare, as we think about equal pay. As we, there's a whole variety of different kinds of things that are both central to things that a Women's Resource Center might do, but also um, have a larger impact 
both in terms of social justice, racial justice, and a variety of other kind of ways that we live our lives. So does it act also then as a bit of a think tank for the college or for the area? Interesting. Um, I think it does, particularly for those who are part of the center. We do have a staff. We have um, interns and programming assistants and folks who volunteer with us. So in terms of a, of a think tank, I think that there are probably ways in which for that group in particular, those experiences help them think about what they're learning in the classroom, what they're learning out in the world, and take some of that out to be able to have those conversations with others, bring in other programming, do those kinds of things, but also then take what they're learning there and take that into the classroom. So there may be some lived experience in ways in which that think tank influences what they do. I don't think it is as central to policy work as I think about a think tank. That was where my next question was going. Yeah, because it really is primarily a, a student, it's a peculiarly um, Utica College kind of office, which is an, an office, it's a center that, that is supported by the institution, has been beautifully supported by the institution in terms of our Student Government Association and our administration for years, but is not formally a part of the institutional structure in ways that it might inform policy other than raising issues when they see it, other than being a place where people go as we're trying to do programming around a variety of issues, as we're thinking about who is it that we want to be involved as we are creating different kinds of, of policies, processes, and those kinds of things. They tend to be the folks who are actively engaged and involved that we go to, but it's not, it's not exactly a formal reporting line of any kind of way that I would think about a think tank. We're recording this in the middle of Women's History Month. Absolutely. As a Full disclosure, cis white man, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for the listeners at home if you don't know, recording this. It, and it sounds like a terrible question mm. because it should be self-evident, but without sounding like, tell me what to do instead of me looking for answers on my own or me researching, what can men do to better help and promote women's issues that are in some cases solely women's issues, but in, mm -hmm. more often than not are issues that affect everybody? To take as one example, uh -huh. uh, gender pay disparity. Right. What is good policy for men to do other than, and, unless it is as simple as, hey, I got a raise, but Susan didn't. And she's doing the exact same job as me. She's been here the exact same amount of time or longer. Mm -hmm. Why didn't she get a raise? So is it, is it just simply a matter of calling out bad behavior when you see it? whether it's ill-intentioned or not, or mm -hmm. does it even go deeper? Sometimes, yes. I think it's as, it's, as simple as, it's as simple as asking questions. It's as simple as paying attention. It's as simple as and as difficult as paying attention to the ways in which um, you may be privileged and others are not. Okay. Um, and asking questions about that. And I say that not with any assumption that people don't and haven't worked hard to get where they are, that there's any assumption that that makes people bad people. I'm a cisgendered white woman um, of a certain generation that has a certain amount of privilege that accrues to that, and a great deal of privilege has allowed me to get to where I am. There's also some other kinds of things that, that come with who I am that have made my journey a little more difficult than others. I'm hoping that sometimes in the roles that I'm in, I'm paying attention enough so that I can ask the kind of questions that, that, that you're raising. It might be as, as simple as paying attention to what's in the news and bringing that into the workplace or having that conversation with family, with friends, with sons, with daughters. Um, I think about, for example, when you talked about um, gender equity, pay equity, about the current uh, the women's soccer team that is suing because of the, the um, inequity in pay mm -hmm. um, between them and the men's soccer team. 
even to the point of having that conversation over coffee with a coworker. I think that there are ways to be able to just be having those conversations and start thinking and asking questions. But you can read, and I, I confess to being a PBS nerd and a WCNY <laughs> nerd, you know, so. WCNY, if you're listening, everyone loves you. <laughs> And so I'll do a shout out for um, those kind of, pro- and there are other programs on as well, on that maybe on network TV, but PBS has some great um, programs, for example, coming up in terms of women and their role in um, nonviolent protests and in conflict mm-hmm. areas and in conflict zones, um, which is from the National Women's History Project. That's the, the theme for this, this, this year's month, um, which has to do with women and nonviolent protests um, and the roles that they play in resistance. I was not aware that there were different themes for it per year. Well, there is out of um, out of California. There is a National Women's History Project, which I think has just changed its name to National Women's History Alliance, um, that every year puts out a, a range of information and materials and tchotchkes and whatever it is that you might might want and posters and bookmarks and provide you with um, a speech if you're doing a National Women's History Month kind of, of dinner or lunch or, or any kind of, kind of program. And every year they both induct women into the Women's Hall of Fame and also um, provide a theme around which you can decide to program if you if you'd like. We always branch out. We do something that's a little bit different every mm-hmm. year. Um, but this year it has to do with um, women and, and participating in, in nonviolence and resistance. And I just went off target. But no, no, it, no, no, but no, you're fine. Tangents you know, are great. Yeah, but it's, so it's it's paying attention to to those kind of things. It's taking the opportunity when you can to question gender, to question assumptions, and that may not always be as easy as it sounds, but sometimes it is. To so think about that, it's it's thinking about history as not just having a history, but that having history that many people are a part of, many people who we may not know about, and many people's history who we may not know about. And intentionally um, thinking about the fact that we don't always have access to that, we don't always know what we don't know, and that may mean that we need to go out and figure out what that is. So following then the theme of this year's Women's History Month of Mm -hmm. nonviolent protest and action, does any one particular movement or any one particular um, historical figure jump out at you? Well, there were a couple of movements or individuals that I think about. We had uh, Dr. Kira Jume, and there's a shout out to, to Dr. Jume from um, Hamilton College come to be our keynote speaker at, at um, Women's History Month brunch, um, I think last week. And she talked about the role of women in the Arab Spring and about the, the ways in which they both protested just simply by their presence and about the strength of their persistence, even in the very violent response that, that they provoked. Yes. And that many of those, and one of the things that I would say about as we talk about women's history is that one of the places that we need to start certainly is by um, identifying um, extraordinary individuals. But we also need to go beyond that to, be, to think about the day-to-day people who make a difference, who are there doing extraordinary things. I'm not sure that, and there, there are certainly um, women in terms of their response to the Arab Spring who we would be able to identify as individuals who did extraordinary things and were, were on the forefront, and we talked about some of those. But it's also understanding that there are ordinary everyday women who are doing things every day and showing up every day mm-hmm. in ways that put them and their families at risk um, because they thought it was important to do so. In the same way that there's a, um, and I may get this wrong, and so if anybody listening to that this gets it, knows that I've gotten it wrong, that's absolutely okay, I'm willing to be corrected. But I know that there are, for example, Palestinian and Israeli women who are mothers who are working across boundary lines to be able to make connection 
because they felt it was their role as um, mothers and women in the Palestinian and Israeli state to be able to try and, and work together to make change um, in resistance. That makes sense because yeah. if you're doing it, especially with small children, I mean, bigotry might be, bigotry or, in, or prejudice might be relatively hardwired into mm -hmm. our brains as primeval survival mechanisms. Mm -hmm. But hatred certainly isn't. The hatred is it's taught. Is taught. So if you're teaching little ones that the kid across the border is not your enemy, that in fact they can be your friend, we this generation might be uh, not doing that well. But there's always hope for the future, especially if you're actively fostering it. Absolutely. Um, and, I, and I'm very hopeful about the future. So I know that sometimes it seems bleak, but I am very hopeful about the, the, the next generations. And I, and I would say, and I'll um, say this just to be, be able to put that out there, is that I think women do extraordinary things. I think that they are often not recognized for the things that they do, either because they are women or because they're doing them on a day-to-day -day basis, um, or they're doing them with their families or as part of a community or at, in private as opposed to a public sphere. There's all of those things that happen. Um, but I will also say that women are not saints and women make mistakes and can be part of the problem as well as part of the solution. So you're saying women um, are humans. And women are human, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but that means you need to give them credit too. Yeah. You know, for the, for the um, things that they can and do do. But yes, women are, are um, human. So I would be one of the first to say, let's not Put us up on pedestals or hold us up as saints because that's not that's not fair either. Okay. So. So switching uh switching yeah. tracks just a little bit, uh, you're, but still staying with the theme of nonviolent protest. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is that makes people who are entrenched in power mm -hmm. give violent reactions throughout history to nonviolent protests? We've seen it all throughout the 20th century mm -hmm. and now the 21st century. Violent crackdowns of calm groups of people. That's a really good question. Um, I, don't, I don't know that I have a particular answer to that other than I would think calm, reasoned, nonviolent protests can be a, um, a rebuke that is harder to respond to than something that is violent, aggressive, or angry. Um, you can justify the dismissal of somebody who is being hostile, who's being in your face, who is being aggressive, or who could be perceived to be any or all of those things. Sure. It's harder to do that when somebody is just simply being present, rational, and pointing out what they see to be flaws in whatever um, the system is that is in place or the argument that you're making. That doesn't mean that calm people can't be irrational yes. or you know, be wrong or any of those kinds of things. But I think, but I, I wonder if sometimes that feels like an even more difficult challenge and that there is a need to push back harder because you can't dismiss it as readily. I've heard it put as only the incompetent fear a level playing field. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> a friend of mine likes to say that on mm. social media a lot. I've heard it put a lot of different ways recently, and that's why I asked you. Yeah. I've heard it put recently that we're not asking for fewer chairs to be at the table or for you to give up a chair at the table. Ah, we're okay. asking, um, um, 
um, if you're a minority or a woman and you want to chair at, let's say, a boardroom that is mm-hmm. predominantly or entirely white men, you're not saying, hey, give up one of your chairs. You're saying, can we add more chairs? Yeah. Can we try to make this look a little more representative of how the country and the world works? And I've also heard it put that when you are used to being the de facto norm of mm-hmm. society, any move to anything different feels like an attack on you, even though cognitively you know it's not, but it oh, still can feel mm-hmm. bad. And so you then see a lot of things. I'm not sure how much you go on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, sometimes it is a cesspool of, mm. <laughs> of angry vitriol. But there's the back and forth of, well, here's what it feels like to somebody who may be in that situation of saying, well, I'm a white guy, I'm a white male, but I've not personally experienced any benefits of privilege. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like you're attacking me, and this this just feels like mm-hmm. an ad hominem attack, and I don't like it. And then other people are saying, well, I don't care how you feel because this is what my lived experience is or mm-hmm. my family's experience is, and so now it's our turn. And And I feel like both are right. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it might sound simplistic, but if we just all tried to listen a little better, which is something I'm actively working on being married to a mental health counselor, <laughs> ah. uh, reading The Art of Listening right now. Okay. Um, good book. Go get it. <laughs> it's on Kindle. This is not an ad. <laughs> <laughs> um, if we all just genuinely listened to each other without agenda, but... Mm-hmm well, what's your lived experience? Here's my lived experience. And then everybody genuinely coming to the concept that we all at some point or another give lip service to that we're more alike than we are different. Mm -hmm. That there'll be, I don't know, some kumbaya moment. I have have dreams. I think think, um, a dream of a kumbaya moment is, is worth holding on to. I don't think it'll happen. I don't, but, but I it's... would like to buy the world a Coke. Yeah, I, I get it. And come over the hillside with everybody hand in hand. I get, you know, I have that whole vision. Um, one of the things that, that, one of the programs that we're working on here at the college um, with some of our faculty and staff, and I know are happening at a variety of colleges, something called intergroup dialogue. Um, and one of the challenges of intergroup dialogue um, is being able to um, share yourself pay attention to um, somebody else as they share of themselves with you, acknowledge that by virtue of being who you are, you may have greater access or may have had um, other kinds of experiences somebody else may have had more difficulty with or not had access to, and that that's shaped experiences, but that doesn't mean that you can't connect, listen to each other, understand each other, and perhaps continue to disagree because that's going to shape how we think about and feel about the kind of things that we engage in, but really be able to listen across those differences. I I think there's a a temptation to say, for example, I don't see color, um, and this is not where you went, and so I'm not assuming that this is where you went, but um, we're more alike than than we are different, and so therefore, you know, we just just need to, you know, say we're all human, and, and it'll all be good. Yeah. But our experiences based on who we are shape who we are. And in some ways, we may not want to let go of that because um, who I am and the, what I've lived through and the kind of ways that I've been in the world have helped shape who I am and part of the joy and the gift of diversity is that we've got people who see the world differently. Yes. 
So um, the ability to, to carefully listen, to not have to convince, but to try to understand, and then to see what that means about how we move forward together in ways that we truly are able to support each other and do the difficult work of figuring out what that looks like without an assumption that it's a zero-sum game, that for somebody to win, somebody has to lose, all those other kinds of, of, of pieces. I think is, is a challenge and has become potentially more so in this day and time, although I'm sure there are other times in our history it's been difficult as well. Goodness. <laughs> We took a little bit of a downer there. So as we're wrapping up, Hmm. is there any one scientific or artistic advance, since this is Steamcast, we look at the connections between STEM and the arts, any one particular moment or advance in the sciences or the arts, and you can have one of each if you'd like, done by a woman that comes to mind? So I love the story, and I hope I have this right, too, of, of Hedy Lamar. I was going to say that if you didn't. <laughs> because I love the idea of a film star who is able to, um, and was it, help remind me of the, because I know it had to do with like code or Morse code. Or, yeah. yeah, she worked on uh, coding that, and I'm going to get this wrong, too, but is used in cell phone technology. Now. Yes. And, and, and so, so for me, even though I know that that was many years ago, she's one of the first people that comes to mind for me because we think of Hedy Lamar as lots of things, but not somebody who does coding for cell phones. No. You know, and I think there's more stories out there than we know that, that are, are like that. And certainly I think about um, the women of Hidden Figures, um, and I think about the women of Bletchley Park um, and during World War II who, who were involved in tracking the kind of movements and doing a lot of the, the very... Um, Top secret kind of work mm-hmm. um, that we did that we don't acknowledge and didn't realize that they were there. And there are incredible, there are incredible artists. There's, there's things happening all the time in, in so many ways that just just picking out one does everybody an injustice. But I would say thinking about those women that we may have made, made assumptions about and then have done some again incredible things is where, is where my mind heads. That wraps up today's conversation on Steamcast. I'd like to thank Elaine Varga, Utica College's Dean of Diversity and Inclusion, for joining us all here on the podcast. She's also a part of the planning committee for the Women in STEAM Congress, taking place at Utica College on Thursday, March 28th. You can reach her through the Utica College website, utica.edu, and learn more about the Women in STEAM Congress at projectfibonacci.org. Steamcast is a production of the Project Fibonacci Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit educational organization whose mission is to introduce our youth to a culture of interdisciplinary STEAM learning, teaching them to become creative, independent leaders of community resurgence. You can learn more by going to projectfibonacci.org. Steamcast was written, produced, and hosted by me, Dan Costellic. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Costellic. Technical support is by Andrew Berger. The music on the show is by The Live and Breathe from the album Reet. You can find it on iTunes or wherever you listen to music. Please subscribe and rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or the podcatcher of your choice. And also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Facebook, we can be found at facebook.com slash Project Fibonacci. And on Twitter, we are at ProFibonacci. That's P-R-O-F-I-B-O-N-A-C-C-I. Thanks for listening. Keep moving forward. Full steam ahead.